as we, as we get into Titus 2 for the second part in this uh, uh, portion of Scripture, we looked at this last week uh, from one perspective, talking about Christian living is virtuous living. Uh, this week, we're going to approach the same text that we last week, we walked through it. Uh, this week, we won't quite do that, but we'll come at it from a different lens and a different angle um, as we get into this same text for this week. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, sometimes, oftentimes, really, our, our unworthiness is, is overwhelming to us. Uh, we fail so often and so much, and then we're reminded that, that we have no, no other standing, no other plea other, other than Jesus Christ. It is enough that he died and that he died for us. Lord, as we come to this passage, um, Lord, show us our unworthiness, but show us how great you are and show us how great uh, you are at work in our life through the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that our, our, our hearts would yield where they need to yield, that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted. Uh, use, use my mind and my lips uh, only to say what you would have me to say for those here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as I mentioned, we talked about the Christian life as being a life of virtuous living. There's a certain conduct that is essential to the Christian life, that is necessary for the Christian life. We talked about at length, and we took some extra time last week to, to, to really uh, focus on the idea that faith and works are, are woven together in the gospel. Faith being the internal heart belief that only in Christ can we be made right with God, only in Christ can our sins be forgiven, only in Christ can we really, truly live a holy life. So self has died, Christ lives in me, And then good works will follow. Good works always follow faith. It's never the other way around. And faith without works is, in the words of James, is dead. It's not real faith. Good works will always follow faith. So if, if faith is the internal heart belief, then the works are the external heart action. Jesus says it. Out of your heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders. At the same time, out of our hearts proceed good works. So if my heart attitude is love and mercy, my external action as we're thinking about what was instructed to us in verse number two, if my heart is love and mercy, my external actions are going to be that my tongue is going to be used to build up others, that I'm caring for my children. And we could go down the list that Paul lays out for us. You say, why emphasize this again? Why, why do we keep talking about faith and works being woven together? Because we need to be reminded of, our, of it often. 
I mean, our, our default position in our heart, our heart tendency, right, is to default to a works-based standing before God. So very quickly, we, we, Paul, Paul talks about this in different places, how, how quick you are removed from the faith of the gospel. Like to go back to works, because our heart is so prone to do this. Christian living is first and foremost faith-based, virtuous living. And our focus must always be redirected to the gospel message. We're always going back to what Christ has done for us. It's why we have the series theme, if you will. A pure church. Can you finish it? Okay, close. A A few of you, right? It's on the screen for us. A pure church is a church of gospel-engaged individuals. We're always going back to the gospel. We live in the light that the glorious gospel that has saved us is sanctifying us and will one day glorify us. Right? That's the end hope of the Christian life. So Christian living is virtuous living, but virtuous living is not an end in itself. In other words, it's not like, okay, so I just live this, this way, these, some of these virtues, and obviously Titus chapter 2 is not an exhaustive uh, list as far as commands for the Christian life, but it's not an end in itself. God is telling us that this is the way a Christian should be living, and at the same time, these things are tools for discipleship. So the gospel itself screams to us, stop thinking about yourself. Not not just in our moral conduct, but stop thinking about yourself in that you're not just called to live this, this, this moral, good, Christian, virtuous life without thinking about how it's impacting and affecting other people in discipleship, in spiritual growth. If these qualities are ours and we're truly living them out, we will necessarily be discipling other people. It is, when we think about discipleship, a necessary component of the Christian life. It is the primary command given to the church. And again, reminder, we just went through that series in in our small groups talking about why church matters. And one of the things that continued to be revealed and emphasized to me, even though I already know it, is the church is not this, this big organization. It's not this place that we meet, but the church is people. So if disciple making is the command, the primary command to the church, it's the primary command to you as believers, to me as a a Christian, a part of this church. It's your primary command. So don't think about the person next to you. Don't think about the person in front of you. A church engaged in the gospel is a church focused on discipleship. A Christian engaged in the gospel is a Christian focused on discipleship. And there's often, oftentimes this excuse of, well, I, I'm not really equipped to disciple someone. Okay? I've felt that before, right? I don't really know where to start. I don't know how to do this. 
But when we, when we get into Titus chapter 2, when we're, when we're thinking through this text, Paul is essentially saying, actually, we are equipped as we live these things out. We are discipling, by default, other people. So disciple-making, discipleship is not a formalized ministry program. It's not like, so what does your church do for discipleship? Well, we have this one-hour class that we disciple people. It's not, it's not what the pattern in Scripture is. It's not what we're seeing in Titus chapter 2. It's not a formalized ministry program. It's not reserved for the elders. It's not reserved for the deacons or a few select leaders that, you know, we're kind of gifted in this. Disciple-making is an all-member engagement in the life of each other. No one is excluded from this. And we'll talk about some practical ideas of disciple-making, but really know this, that Paul is setting the stage for these believers in Crete to be making disciples. I mean, yes, virtuous Christian living, but there's an end game here. There's a reason that Paul is, is stressing this and, and pushing for this. And his tools for discipleship is, is simply to live in light of the gospel. Live, live your life in light of what Christ has done for you in these ways. So in our, in our mindset today, we would say this is hardly a blueprint for discipleship. I mean, like, give me a... Give me like this bullet point list here that I can follow to be able to disciple someone. But, but in the reality, it is a blueprint for discipleship. And Paul instructs Titus to teach the people a way of living that aligns with sound doctrine. Why? So that, we're going to see that those two words uh, multiple times in our text so that they will be able to teach others. Paul's super concerned about what's going to happen to his church. And so he says, Titus, teach these people these things. Why? So that they can teach others the same. So that they can be making disciples. And so Paul lays out instructions for older men and older women younger men and younger women, slaves, which we, we referenced as employees or talked about, applied as employees last week. But before we really jump into this, I do want to point out, notice that children are not mentioned here. The young men refer, that he's referring to are, are uh, younger men, younger married men that probably would have kids. But children are not mentioned, and you ask yourself, why? Why, why doesn't it say anything about children? And, and here's the reason that I believe why, because their primary discipling happens within the home. This is not to say that the church doesn't have a role in discipling children. Certainly we have uh, different programs, different ministries that we, we have ongoing that we seek to disciple children, teens, all of those things. However, generally speaking, our children will follow the teaching and the living they receive in the home. What they're seeing modeled in their parents, taught by their parents, is by and large, won't make a blanket statement, but by and large, what they're going to walk away with. 
when it's time for them to leave the home. And if there's anywhere I think the church misses in discipling children, right? It's at times we put the emphasis on the wrong thing. And so our, our, our youth and our children's ministries are in reality family ministries. I mean, yes, we're teaching kids. But how are we instructing parents? And one of the questions that I ask often in my role as associate pastor of family life is, how is CBC strengthening parents and families? That was just a, a side note that I thought is important and helpful to at least mention. As a church, we have a mission. It's actually on the inside of your bulletin. Our mission, it's on the screen behind, is to live the gospel, to love the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And I thought about, I'm breaking, I'm breaking chapter 2 down into three parts. Last week was really that virtuous living, to live the gospel as a church. This week, to proclaim the gospel, making disciples. Disciple making is, begins in evangelism, but continues to teach all things I command you, Jesus says. And then next week we will look at what it means for a Christian to, to have a grace-filled living, grace-filled life, to love the gospel, to want this just because we're overwhelmed with the grace of God. So this text very much so applies to even our own explicit church mission. And we ask the question, how, we, how are we to fulfill this mission? And I think this text is very helpful. It gives very helpful insight into what the community of the, church, the local church should look like. What should, what should our daily lives look like with one another? It speaks to our philosophy of ministry. So what we value as a church, what we're prioritizing as a local body. Because we want to be a church that is a disciple-making church. So as I said, Christian living is not only a virtuous life, but it is a, a disciple-making life. What does a disciple-making life look like? I have three, three points for us this morning, and we'll be done. What does a disciple-making life look like? Number one, it is relational. There's no getting around the relational elements here in Titus chapter 2. Paul is addressing believers on a day-to-day life uh, application here. We're talking about home life. That's what, we, that's what we mentioned last week. Okay? So Paul's not just saying, hey, your conduct when you gather together, this is what it should look like. He's actually saying your conduct at home when you're outside of this place, here's what it should look like. And it's relational. First of all, there's a sharing of space. Okay? There, there seems to be this understanding that there will be relational interaction with others in the body outside of the corporate gatherings. So we, we gather on Sunday, we scatter throughout the week, but, but there's going to be this relational interaction that's happening. Max chapter 2 and verses 46. We know that the early believers were day by day 
attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. So they're having, they're having meals together. Okay, so even in, in our culture where the idea of sitting around the dinner table maybe can be somewhat foreign to our thinking, right? Even in this culture that we live in, having someone over in your home for a meal is a very intimate time of relationship. There's, some, there's something about eating together. And so I would highly encourage this practice for you, whether you're single, whether you're a family. But disciple-making happens within relationships. The more we know one another, the more we speak the truth of the gospel into each other's lives. So we get to see one another living out or not living out a virtuous life, as we're called to do. You know, when, we, when we're talking about home life here, right, oftentimes we come to this place and we, we, we put on the non-home life, Dennis, or, you know, whoever, Bill. We, we put this persona on us. We're a different person, but when we're in our home, things might look a little different. This relational aspect can't happen if we're always separate. The church still exists outside of the few hours that we get together here on Sunday. And I, I think we, we think about it while there's great growth that happens in the fellowship as we get together, in the singing that happens. I mean, were you encouraged this morning in the singing? Yes, I hope so build up, edified. We, we, we grow through the preaching of the gospel. The bulk of disciple-making will happen outside of these few hours that we're together. So there's a sharing of space, okay? Just being, being together throughout the week. But then let me take that a step further, okay? There is a sharing of life. So there's a sharing of life that ought to be happening within the body. This goes beyond being in the same place, right? We could be in the same place and really not talk about anything substantial. The sharing of life, though, is the opening up of our lives to one another. The sharing of our life with one another. I thought about this. A couple different questions. How many people... And I'll ask you, how many people do you really know? I mean, do you really know? People that ask you for prayer as they battle sin, as they have struggles week to week, day to day, might have problems at home. How many people do you really, you really know them? And I, I, the flip side of that, how many people really know you? How many people really know you? Think about most of the conversations that happens on Sunday morning. And again, I'm generalizing. But I've experienced this. I've had these conversations. I've been, I mean, somewhat guilty of the same kind of things. I don't know if, not really a sin, but just think about the level of our conversations. So how was your week? Well, it was good. How was yours? Well, it was busy, Right? But at least the weather's getting nice so I can plant my garden soon. Yeah, that's, that's good news. 
I got to get started on that too. And sometimes that's, that's it. And sometimes that's the extent of sharing our life with someone week in and week out. And, and usually the reason behind this is, is sometimes we don't know how, but oftentimes I think maybe there's a level of pride. What will they think if, I, if they know that I fail here? What will they think if they know that I'm struggling here? I mean, I have a, I have a reputation to uphold. Plus, Dennis, you, you're new to this area. This is a small town area, and word travels fast, right? Well, that, that gets, goes back to how we're using our tongues, what we just talked about last week. But sharing of our life, we're inviting others into our lives. We're opening ourselves up. And, and it's not easy. Not easy at all. Like, I'm not, I'm not throwing this out there saying, hey, just, you know, just do this like you're, you're talking about the weather. It's, it's not quite like that. But it won't happen unless we have a growing understanding of the gospel's work in our life. We're going back to that theme, being engaged in the gospel. When we understand that the gospel is working itself out and growing in our life and how it's doing that, because the gospel tells us that we don't need to worry about what other people think because we have a Father who loves us even in our failures. We don't need to wear the mask of self-righteousness because our righteousness doesn't impress God at all. How do we know that? Because the gospel is telling us that. It's teaching us that. Maybe you say, okay, I, I get that point, but I'm just so busy. I, I really don't think I have the time to engage people, to share life with other people like you're talking about. But I want you to picture yourself. I've said it. I want you to picture yourself saying this to Jesus as he says to you, standing in front of you, I have called you out. I have made you my own. And I'm giving you a mission to make disciples. And then we say to him, well, I'm just really kind of busy right now. I think a little perspective goes a long way. We would be hard-pressed to say that if Christ was really in front of us speaking that. Right? But we are busy, and this does take time. I'm not naive to that. I understand. It takes time, and it may mean that we reprioritize as a family, as individuals, what we spend our time doing. When's the last time you've reevaluated your weekly schedule and said, how, how are we as a family, how am I as a believer making disciples? Where is that time carved out? Because this is essential to the Christian life. The gospel message is a relational message. We, we think about, it's not just, hey, you, you need to be relational because you're supposed to be. But the message of the gospel itself is an intrinsically relational message. God is a relational God. Right? All members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are relating to one another. There's three in one. 
God is a relational God. And then through the gospel, God is restoring sinners to a relationship with himself. He's restoring sinners to a relationship with one another. Okay, it's, it's through the gospel that it even enables us to have a relationship with other people without... I mean, think of how many different people are in this room and different personalities and different likes and dislikes. And, and at least, at least it, it appears, and what I've experienced, people really do get along and love each other. How is that done? It's all done through, through the gospel. The gospel itself is a relational message because we can have relationship with one another and with him because God broke relationship with his son on the cross. Think about that. God broke his relationship with Christ so that you can be in relationship with him, so that I could be in relationship with him, so that we could be in relationship with one another. And so the leadership here at CBC discussed often how is disciple making happening? How are we encouraging this type of discipleship to take place in our church? You know, what does that look like for our church? We see small groups as helping in this area, right? Our small groups kind of bring this relational component to the, to the, to the life of the body throughout the week, whenever that particular groups meet. And really, if I could say it like this, we see that as crucial to your spiritual growth. Like you being plugged into a small group. We don't, we don't get up and mandate things like that, but we see it as crucial to discipleship taking place in your life. But, but that's just the start, right? Our small groups we want to see is just a taste. This is a taste of relational living. But then that gets worked out and flushed out in one-on-one uh, discipleship opportunities, couples to couples, families to families. I can say this for my own life, right? Relationships that point me to Jesus over and over are crucial to my Christian walk. I have grown more in my spiritual life from relationships and friendships with godly men and women. And I'm not even talking about pastors here. So, I, I mean, even just people in the pew that, that, that are focused on Christ. I've grown more in my spiritual life than from the bulk of the college courses I've ever taken. So hearing sound doctrine is important, but seeing sound doctrine lives out makes that teaching come alive. It puts some teeth into it. It helps us to understand what is this like to now live this out in my life. And this happens in relationships with one another. Whether it's sharing a meal, whether it's building a deck. It, it, it may seem... You may think, well, how in the world does that, <laughs> how in the world does that happen? This just flew into my mind. Sometimes that's dangerous when things fly into my mind. But uh, I grew yesterday with the men that came over to build my deck. And you know where I, one of the spe- specific areas I grew in was all the pieces didn't always fit. And there were mistakes made. But I watched as older wiser, more godly men than me. They didn't get mad. They didn't bang their hammer on something. They said, okay, what did, you know, let's take a step back. And they calmly approached the situation and fixed the problem. 
Disciple-making is relational. But number two, disciple-making is intentional. You see the intentionality of disciple-making in phrases that begin with so, like in verse number four. Okay? Uh, end of verse three, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Right? There's an, there's a, there's an end game here. There's, an, there's, there's a reason that women, older women are to live in a certain way. In verse number five, if you have the ESV, it doesn't say so that, but I'm going to supply it. You know, uh, Younger women are to be all of these things, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Disciples will be made as the word of God goes out. Then you get down to verse number eight. Okay, instruction to Titus, and I think probably even young men by extension, uh, sound speech, have sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame. Evangelistically speaking, verse number 10, slaves are not to be pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There's an intentionality to disciple-making. We can do relational things. We can have relationships. We can have people over. We can do things with people. But we need to make sure that our relationships are intentional and that they're intentionally focused on the gospel. I want to ask two questions in thinking about being intentional. First of all, who? The who. Who are we supposed to be intentional with? Or how, what, what does this question look like as we think about being intentional, right? Our text here in Titus helps us begin to think about the who. Well, where do I start with this? I mean, who should I be discipling? How can I be intentional about who I'm even trying to build these discipleship relationships with? Well, Titus is to teach and instruct men, while the task of discipling younger women is directed to the older women. Okay, I think there's some practical reasons behind that. It guards Titus from any uh, temptation towards uh, potential adultery, right? So one-on-one discipleship should always be the same gender. Very, very practical there. But we must be prayerful about the who, Okay, the, the text, notice, the text does not break down relationships based on similar likes, interests, or personalities. Well, so if, if you like the same thing that I do, uh, or you, you have the same dislikes that I do, we probably make a good match. It's not, that's not how the text breaks it down. It doesn't talk about those things. Why? Because our commonality is Jesus Christ. That, that's our commonality. And you might be surprised how God, will peop, how, how God uses people that aren't like you to disciple you. Sometimes the very opposites of who we are is what we need to see modeled in our life. Who are you intentionally spending time with for the purpose of disciple making? That's a, that's a challenging question. Challenging to myself. Where am I carving out that time and who am I actually intentionally seeking out? 
Uh, and I'll just, side note, Jesus himself only really had 12 core disciples. Like, we can't disciple everybody. It's not going to happen. It's going to be ineffective. It's not going to work. So it's not like, hey, everybody I see, I, I should be having this really good uh, shared life relationship with. It might be one. It might be two. It might be a handful, depending on what your situation is. But, but don't, don't feel overwhelmed with numbers because Jesus, who is God, only had 12 core disciples Number second question we need to ask, though, is the what. And I already mentioned this, but we, we need to be intentional about gospel-focused discipleship. So what are we doing as we think about making disciples? Well, first of all, we are preaching the gospel. This is what we need to hear. This is what we need to be encouraged with. This is what we need to be encouraging one another with. Right? So the friends struggling with contentment needs to hear more than hang in there. I'm sure something, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, like contentment, let's say contentment in their uh, workplace. Hey, something else will open up. I'm sure it will. Just, just hang in there. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to get better in your job. Here's a list of things to do every day when you start having that discontent feeling. A friend needs to hear more than that. A man who's been perhaps laid off or struggling to provide for his family, needs to hear more than, hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, you know, you can sign up for unemployment. There's government assistance for, for that. While there might be a place for some of those things to be said, what they need to hear is the gospel being spoken into their situation. We, they need to hear, hey, remember that Paul says we can be content in any situation when we find our satisfaction in Christ. He's the only one can, that can bring true contentment. So even if you change jobs, and maybe you need to change a job, but even if you do, you're not going to find contentment in your job. You're not going to find satisfaction there. So let's go to him with your struggles. Let's thank him for being content to come into this broken world and be our sacrifice. Or maybe, hey, I'm, I'm sorry you were laid off. I'm sorry you're struggling to provide. I know it's hard to imagine, but in times like this, your Heavenly Father loves you more than you could ever know. He only gives you good things, and, and all that He does is to draw you, His child, closer to Him. Right? He's a good dad. He's promised never to leave you. He's promised never to forsake you. And Jesus is the greatest treasure, so let's go to Him in, in prayer and ask Him to provide and prove Himself true once again. We need to be preaching the gospel. So it's not an ABC, admit you're a sinner, believe. I mean, that is the gospel, but we're speaking the gospel into certain situations as we're sharing our life together. So we need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be modeling the gospel. Dennis Snell kind of rolled his eyes, I think, at me on this next slide. But does anybody know what yesterday was? May 4th. National Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Okay? That's, a, that's for all the Star Wars fans out there. But I think it applies when we think about, in Star Wars, there's a Jedi, right? 
And then there's always this pupil, this learner. And the, and the Jedi is this, this all-wise mentor that has all the answers and knows everything, right? And then there's the pupil that just needs to learn, okay? And, and the, the Jedi is always right. And that's usually the picture when we think about discipleship or mentorship. But it really doesn't fit the biblical model of disciple-making. Right? And the biblical model of disciple-making is more of this picture of a growing wiser mentor and a growing wiser younger student. And the key being, they're both still growing. Neither have it all figured out. Right? Neither have all the answers. So gospel disciple-making isn't just showing, showing someone how to do all the right things. So, look, I got it all together. This is what you're supposed to do as a Christian. This is how you're supposed to live. Just look at me, and you'll be fine. Right? I'll show you how it's done. Gospel disciple-making actually shows a humility It shows a vulnerability. It shows an honesty in our struggles and our failure. So the goal in modeling the gospel, the goal in discipling, right, isn't to model perfectionism. They need to see this perfect person that has it all together. Because others are watching our lives. And they're either being drawn, drawn to Jesus or they're being pushed away by what they see in us. The, the goal of gospel disciple-making, of discipleship using and modeling the gospel is sometimes we come and say, look, I failed. I failed and I'm going back to the cross. I'm going back to Christ because he's my only hope. And look, you're never going to be perfect as you see in my own life. I'm not this master Jedi that has it all together. I struggle, I fail, I succumb, but I'm going back to Christ because he's still all that I need. He's still my source of hope. And so whether it's people inside the church, whether it's people without the church, outside of the church, people aren't drawn to Jesus simply by morality. People aren't drawn to Jesus because they see somebody that's doing a bunch of good things, but they're drawn to Jesus when they see joy and peace in a love that's filled, in love in a world that's filled, I should say, absent of those things. They're not drawn because they see good people, but they're drawn because they see people engaged in the gospel. Demonstrating it in their lives in a culture that's They don't see humility. They don't see vulnerability. They don't see people willing to admit their failures. So when we model the gospel, it's not modeling perfectionism, but it's it's actually modeling oftentimes humility, confession, repentance, and at the same time, virtuous and godly living. So let's be intentional about who who we are discipling, and to what end we are discipling them. Discipling them in the gospel. Number three, disciple-making. And we'll be finished with this third point. Is intergenerational. 
There's four groups mentioned other than slaves in our text. We have older women, older men, older women, younger men and younger women. Older men and women are to be discipling younger men and women. Here's, this is the pattern that we have here in our text. Generally speaking, discipleship happens as older believers teach younger believers. There's two elements I want to consider in relation to this this morning. First element uh, in this is uh, just teach. We are called to teach. Older, teaching the younger. Older men and women. Can I speak to you for just a moment? Wherever, you know, this is, this is post-children years. Think who Paul's addressing here. It might even be, in our culture, the retirement years. But there is still work to be done. It's not sit back, coast in retirement. I, I put in my work. Now I'm done living. Now I can just kind of relax. I'm done all my work. You are called here to invest yourself in the next generation. You are now to be teachers of the next generation. And some of the struggles that older men and women face that we talked about last week in this area of, of our, the use of our tongues and um, self-control and some of these things, I, I think sometimes these struggles are simply a battle because we, you have too much time on your hands. What do I do with all this time? I don't have, I don't have kids that I'm raising anymore. Uh, life is a lot different. I might be retired from my job. But you're called to disciple the next generation. Because if you aren't discipling the next generation, someone else is discipling the next generation. That's the end of chapter 1. These false teachers have come in, and they are leading people astray. They're leading whole families astray, whole households astray. Disciples are being made, but are they being made disciples of Jesus? Disciples of someone else? All of us, okay, not just older men and women, but all of us are called to live lives that teach, okay? But with specific care to those who are coming behind us. So I might not be retirement aged, but there is another generation coming behind me. If you're a teenager, there's another generation coming behind you. We're all called to teach. And this is Paul's admonishment to Titus in verses 7 and 8. Right? He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. uh, Titus, the younger man here is to model this for all the church, but for those that would come behind him. And again, it's worth mentioning, this isn't formalized classroom teaching. This is hands-on training, right? We're we're, we're talking about real-life application of the gospel in specific situation. So it's not just about teaching Bible doctrine, but about living this doctrine out ourselves. 
right? So caring for the home. Sometimes that's, just, that's a hard thing. It's a, it's a hard thing to do for a wife and a mother. We talked about that last week. But it involves more than quoting Bible verses, right? So when your kids are hungry, it's not really helpful to quote, man shall not live by bread alone, right? When the, when the clothes are dirty and piling up, it's not, hey, look, man looks on the outward, but the Lord looks on the hearts, there might be some doctrine there. But older women, this is, this is where you come in. There's a need for you to come alongside newer moms, newer wives, and to teach and to train, right? What, all this stuff that it's talking about, it says, so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be working at home, you're supposed to be training the next generation in these things. Older men, the same. There's a need for you to come alongside new husbands and new dads and to train them. Training in godliness, yes, but training in godliness as we carry out everyday life skills. Again, like building a deck. But this has become more and more crucial with the breakdown of our home. People scatter. You know, younger families may not have parents close by, may not have people to help walk them through some of these things. It's just becoming more and more, the need is becoming more and more prevalent. And this is even more than elders are called to do. Right? As, as much as elders are called to be spiritual shepherds and to teach, right? I'm going to use the, the, the discipling of the young women here. But Paul is very clear to Titus, even though he's to be providing sound doctrine and sound instruction to the body, older women, you're responsible to teach younger women. So some of this is beyond even the scope of what elders are called to do. This is a whole body making disciples together, all members engaged. Young men being discipled by older men, young women discipled by older women. We are called, we are all called to teach the next generation. But second aspect I want to touch on real briefly is teachable. We're not only to teach, but we're to be teachable. Right? Young men and women, these words are instructions for you as well. If older believers are opening themselves up to teach, younger believers, you need to be opening yourselves up to be teachable. You must be willing to be discipled. You must, be, you must want to be discipled. Because you don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. I mean, how many parents feel like they don't know what they're doing as they're raising kids? I raise my hand right? How are you going to learn? Unless you're willing to be taught. Unless you're willing to be discipled in this area. How many marriages, young marriages, are on the verge of ruin with nowhere to turn or no desire to turn to anybody, right? Tim Chester, I have a quote on the screen here. He writes this, our culture has lost the willingness to be fathered and mothered. So much of our life interaction, even our church life, is peer-to-peer. But we need other peer groups 
other generations speaking into our lives, people who have experienced life and experienced gospel growth themselves. And so I, I just, my prayer this morning for all of us that we would have humble and teachable hearts. Paul gives us a picture of a church that looks like a family, right? This intergenerational discipling is happening. Older believers are seeking out younger believers to disciple. Younger believers are wanting to be discipled by older believers. Generations intentionally sharing their lives with one another. And this takes great humility and great sacrifice. I I fully understand that. But it's the kind of humility and sacrifice that only comes when we daily realize our undeserved love, that, the undeserved love that God pours out to us every day because he sacrificed himself for us. He gave his life for us. And church, we're a part of a larger plan of God. He's calling people out to, his, uh, to himself for his own possession, which we'll talk about next week, who are zealous, passionate for good works. So we're motivated by love for Christ. We're motivated by love for his church, his bride. And it matters because disciple making is is a mark of a true disciple. Just as we would say a virtuous life is a mark of a true Christian, disciple making is also a mark of a true Christian. And I want to end with this quote and we'll be finished from Sam Albury. He says, discipleship is the difference between being a fan and being a Christian. It's easy to respect Jesus, even to revere him, but Christians follow him. Are we willing to follow him in this area of disciple-making this morning? (music) 